It's not about the F-bomb. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he is Jeremy S. Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com, and you can find Jeremy on the highways and byways of Texas. His work appears at houstonchronicle.com. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm hanging in there, ready for war the next 90 days, where it will be lucky if any of us ever get a day off, right? Quit your bitch and we haven't even got to uh, Labor Day yet, yeah. right? That's when it will really ramp. I mean, if, if people think it was act, you know active so far on the campaign trail, that's when it really happens. Yep. And you start to hear from the campaigns that, oh, yeah, we're going to make our big ad buys. There'll be TV ads all over the place after Labor Day. That's when people really start to pay attention. And there is something to be said for that. I mean, even though the campaign season never ever seems to end anymore, Jeremy, it really is only the most um, ardent and bitter partisans, I think, who really pay attention, you know, up until this point, yes. right? So much of what has been said and done can all, think of it this way, for all of the things that have been said, for all of the things that have happened over the last, you know, 12 to 18 months, whatever it is, and as we've been you know, ramping up toward the real uh, campaign season and the election, every bit of it can be reshaped through millions of dollars in messaging and advertising from this point forward, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is when like, you know, once we hit September, it is just, you know, all, you know, think of all that money that Greg Abbott has raised, mm -hmm. you know, in Beto O'Rourke, you know, we're talking about $200 million that's going to be spent on this campaign just to tell you what you should think. <laughs> no matter mm -hmm. what you heard before, this is what you should think about it. <laughs> Keep it right here. We will try to keep it all in context for you. Um, there was the F-bomb heard around the world uh, this week, it seemed, Jeremy. So many people reacted when Beto O'Rourke dropped the F-bomb during a town hall. And, of course, he's doing those all over the state. Uh, you were uh, traveling along with the campaign a couple of weeks ago in small little places. He was in one of those small places when this happened. I'll get to it in just a second. But I want to talk about why I think the way this is being talked about is important. Um, we are now three months at, you know, post Uvalde massacre. And remember when this first unfolded, I mean, just horrific. You remember where you were. I remember where I was. Our listeners can remember where they were when we started to hear the news that that afternoon, at least 14 children had been shot and were potentially all dead down in uh, South Texas. And of course, the number continued to grow. Uh, just a horrible, I mean, I, there's no words for how bad it was, right? Um, and the governor knew that. He was the one who announced that 14 children had been killed and then the number grew. He went on to a fundraiser in Walker County that night, which as we've pointed out, was not on the way to Uvalde from Abilene, where he was. Uh, this F-bomb from Beto, it came up during a discussion about what happened in Uvalde and the response or lack thereof to what happened in Uvalde. But I'm not going to let y'all forget what that day was like. So I want to start not with Beto, but let's go back to the day after the shooting. This gentleman on Hell Garza was on CNN talking about his daughter, Amory, who we've now all seen her picture now, right? In the, in the three months since and all those other kids who were killed. Uh, on Hell was talking to Anderson Cooper just about his daughter, about what kind of little girl she was. She was so sweet, Mr. Cooper. She was the sweetest little girl who did nothing wrong. 
She listened to her mom and dad. She always brushed her teeth. She did. She was creative. She made things for us. She never got in trouble in school. Like, I just want to know what she did. What she did that day, it's our understanding, and we don't have all the answers about what happened, but what she did is she was one of the kids who was on a cell phone trying to call the police, who, as we now know, stood out in the hallway for more than an hour. She just tried to call the police. She tried to, she actually tried to call. Yes, I got confirmation from two of the students in her classroom that she was just trying to call the authorities. And I guess he just shot her. How do you look at this girl and shoot her? <laughs> oh, my baby. How do you shoot my baby? The grief is really unbelievable, Jeremy. And you've seen so many of the interviews with these folks in the aftermath. Uh, you know, weeks later, I follow uh, his wife. Um, uh, on Twitter, who I'm sure did not have a big following before any of this, but now she certainly does. And every day, I mean, I was looking at her feed this week uh, and every day, Jeremy, she tweets out something about her daughter. It's her whole world. The idea that uh, her little girl was gunned down that day in horrific fashion. She'll tweet out things just and say things like, I miss my daughter so much. And that's it. And you can feel it when you see it on your on your phone or on your iPad, your, the, 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 you know, the screen of your computer. You can still feel the grief coming off of these people, Jeremy. Yeah. And imagine the emptiness right now uh, as everybody's kind of getting ready to go back to school or the back to school shopping. As a parent, you kind of get into this routine uh, and to think that like, you know, here you are. It's like like that you're not doing that this year for your kid. It's just like it's hard enough for those of us who have kids who are grown, you know, and when they stop yeah. going to, you know, school and they don't need that kind of stuff. But imagine it be suddenly taken away, you know, as a fourth grader, or as a third grader, or as a fifth grader. It's like, yeah, it, I can't imagine what those families are going through right now as the rest of the world is talking about going back to school. And all they can think of is their babies like that they just buried. And as the rest of the world discusses the way in which people talk about what happened and, uh, and whether it's appropriate to use certain words, I have for a long time been of the mind that specific words don't really matter that much as long as they convey the thought. You know that communication, communicating, whether it's writing, speaking, whatever, all it is is taking a thought that's in your head and putting it in someone else's head. However you do that, that, that sounds easier than it is. And that's why there are certain people who are pros at this and amateurs. The exchange that Beto O'Rourke had with a guy who came across as a jerk at this event in Mineral Wells uh, went viral. I'm sure it's been seen millions of times now. I'd like to, for you to hear it in its entirety. Uh, he's, Beto is speaking about Uvalde and about a lack of a public policy uh, response. You can hear a guy start to laugh when Beto's talking about the idea that with an AR-15, you could kill somebody who's wearing a military-style helmet. And, of course, those kids there didn't have anything like that. And then you will hear Beto's response to that. I'm going to make sure that now 11 weeks since we lost 19 kids and their two teachers shot to death with a weapon originally designed for use in combat, legally purchased 
by an 18-year-old who did not try to obtain one when he was 16 or 17, but followed the law that's on the books, ladies and gentlemen, that says that you can buy not one, you can buy two or more if you want to, AR-15s, hundreds of rounds of ammunition, and take that weapon that was originally designed for use on the battlefields in Vietnam to penetrate an enemy soldier's helmet at 500 feet and knock him down dead up against kids at five feet. It may be funny to you, motherfucker, but it's not funny to me, okay? Cue the hand-wringing. Oh, people can't believe that he said that. Cursing in Texas politics? Say it ain't so. Well, I'm Ted Cruz, and my pronoun is kiss my ass. For Senator Cruz, it's appropriate to curse when you're talking about people's pronouns. He, of course, is upset about the whole woke movement, and in fairness to Cruz, so that no one can say I took him out of context, Here's the entire joke that he tells that ends with that punchline. I talked to a student recently at one of our woke college campuses who said she is required in every class to introduce herself and to give her pronouns. Well, I'm Ted Cruz and my pronoun is kiss my ass. So, Jeremy, you might think that that's only one example and maybe it's a false equivalence. No, here's former President Trump cursing about NFL players who kneel during the national anthem. I'd love to see one of these NFL owners, when somebody disrespects our flag, to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired! Why does Beto have to speak this way? Uh, there are gradations to, uh, to colorful language, right? There are certain words that people think are worse than others and approach obscenity. And of course, that has a certain uh, legal meaning. But I saw an interview uh, from, I think, what is this? Uh, it's from a couple of years ago on CNN uh, with Christian Amanpour. And, and Jeremy, you've been interviewed by Amanpour. You're the real star on the show here. <laughs> people, people don't realize I'm just living off your fame. Um, here's how she sets it up. Amanpour asked him why it is that he drops the F-bomb specifically when he's talking about mass shootings. Now, as you know, Jeremy, you cover this guy a lot. You've been to his rallies and his events and seen him in debates and all of that. And he is prone to, you know, using colorful language. Sometimes you, you, you might say he cusses like a sailor. But if you go back and you review his uh, public statements, yes, he's dropped the F-bomb on different issues, but this is the issue where it comes up the most, mm -hmm. right? On mass shootings. Is that, I mean, you've, you've covered the guy. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. This is where he gets most heated. And just to give a little context, you know, while I was traveling with him, you know, throughout the, the Texas pan, panhandle, like in places like Pampa and Spearman, almost the same thing kind of played out where there'd be somebody who would start, you know, kind of laughing about his characterization mm -hmm. of AR-15 uh, and that these are weapons of war as like there would always be somebody who would like start chuckling and he had a harsh response right. to them almost every time not this harsh but like certainly like i heard it like you know to the close of hey it may not be funny to you but listen up you know it's like that kind of stuff but this is what this was definitely a different kind of you know energy well, yeah a different different kind of energy and it, it reminds me of you know every time that i have ever gotten to an argument with somebody imagine that that does happen um you always have the the thought later like what if i would have said this or what if i would have said that and if you keep having the same exchange over and over again you might just do that but this is from the interview uh on cnn with amanpour and here's what she does she plays for him an example of him saying it and then asks him why he keeps doing it and now I want to play the a little bit of a soundbite that you that where you use this word uh, during a Sunday uh, morning show, in fact, with CNN. 
We're averaging about 300 mass shootings a year. No other country comes close. So, yes, this is up. And if we don't call it out for what it is, if we're not uh, able to speak clearly, if we're not able to act decisively, then we will continue to have this kind of bloodshed in America. And I cannot accept that. Why do you keep using that word? It's just honest. And I think it describes the situation, um, the rhetoric that we've used before, the politics as they have played out, have done absolutely nothing to save the lives of our fellow Americans. And having just been in Midland and Odessa yesterday, the scene of another mass shooting in West Texas, seven people killed, to meet a mother who lost her 15-year-old daughter, watched her bleed to death in front of her. Uh, she was uh, there for an hour before ambulances could arrive because so many people were killed and shot over so many different parts of Midland and Odessa. Uh, to meet a woman whose brother was killed in front of his wife, in front of his kids. Um, this, this situation cannot continue, and we cannot continue to talk about it in the same way, or we're going to get the same results. We have to shake ourselves out of this complacency. We have to shock the conscience of this country. We have to force us to act decisively or accept that this is our fate and our lot and our future. He does have a point, Jeremy, about the way in which after every one of these shootings, whether it's the Walmart massacre in El Paso, or the mass shooting in Midland, Odessa, or Sutherland Springs, or Santa Fe, or the shootings in uh, Florida, or in Connecticut, or where they, there's so many, I can't remember them all. It would seem that people would always say the exact same things, go through the exact same motions, and he's willing to shake things up. And I'm not going to give him all the credit in the world for anything that has happened. I mean, there, there was a bipartisan effort, including Senator John Cornyn, to do something in Washington about this. Because remember, after Uvalde, people were saying, this feels different. So something different has to happen. But I have to I do have to give him some credit, which is to say, look, you can't have the same exact debate that you always have and expect things to be different. He's trying to make the debate different. And guess what? It is not only are people talking about it differently, uh, but people are still talking about it three months after it happened, which would usually not be the case. It would usually sort of fade from the headlines uh, after three weeks or a month. Yeah, and and look at the the uh, the situation here. We got like on one case, him using this language has the potential of turning the story into him using the language, right? It's like in you know, so there's one group of people where like now the focus is going to be like, oh, look, he always drops the f bomb in these moments. You know, the the Abbott campaign is like this. This is a foul mouth kid that you don't want to vote mm -hmm. for in November. You know, that's what that's going to be. But at the same time, I can see Beto like by using this you know word, he's getting people's attention now all this is back on the air somewhere talking about how he's responding to Uvalde like it may not be the focus you know but it's kind of brought Uvalde back to the focus which it should be so like I could be either way on this you know like you know him using this word certainly adds mm -hmm. fuel to the fire of like look you can't just be dropping this language all the time he's talked about it before like when I was traveling with him in Iowa during his presidential campaign you know people kept asking him that question and he'd say stuff like yeah my wife has been telling me to tone it down you know it's like <laughs> and i need to do that it's like so he knows like using that word can completely you know counteract your message mm -hmm. but there are times when the word could be used where it brings the attention back to the topic was this sure. the time to do it i don't know time will tell but you know certainly yeah i can see both sides of why it's like why you don't hear greg abbott dropping the f-bomb you know, it's like and, and, and mm -hmm. there's a point where it's like, you know, does Abbott have that same kind of anger that he's displaying or frustration? And do people want that? Right. You know, it's like we want our politicians to react in honesty. Mm -hmm. And Abbott's been well, like 
he hasn't really said much about Yavaldi since the week of Yavaldi. You haven't really right. seen him talk about the emotion of losing children and being at the funerals, you know, and being mad at hell at you know, whatever led to that when in his mind, it's just like, you haven't heard, had that energy. And sometimes it kind of helps to have a politician, you know, I, I hate doing this, but comparing it to like Ron DeSantis, where it's just mm -hmm. like, whether you agree or disagree with his politics, he's throwing some anger and frustration at the stuff he's seeing mm -hmm. that he disagrees with that yeah. we're not getting from Abbott. Well, and I think when it comes to uh, – it's a great point on on some of the education issues that Republicans want to make certain changes about. It's been guys like DeSantis or Glenn Youngkin up in Virginia who have really sort of poured the gasoline on the fire, the anger of some of the things that people are mad about when it comes to public schools and then trying, you know, trying to use that yeah. to you know, as, as leverage for the kind of public policies they want to you know, put in place uh, on public education. So it can be effective in that way. And I think you're right. It's, it's a deal where if, if you say certain things, the debate becomes about whether you should have said that certain thing rather than what the thing was that you were talking about. But in Uvalde, you know, the parents continue to ask that anybody be held accountable for the way that massacre played out. And we keep asking the same question because we have yet almost three months later to hear any answers or to see any accountability from anybody. How can we lose 19 children and two teachers tragically, just horribly, and not have anybody yet be accountable? Those were some parents uh, speaking at a school board meeting just this week uh, in Uvalde, still upset about this, wondering why nothing has changed and why certain people haven't been held accountable, as you heard, and that would be uh, state police, federal police, that would be lawmakers in Austin who, you know, according to people in Uvalde, should have had a special session called by the governor by now to make some changes when it comes to school security, gun policy, etc. Senator Rowan Gutierrez is a Democrat from San Antonio. Of course, his district includes Uvalde, and he's been suing the Texas Department of Public Safety, trying to get the records from that day, which would include body cam video and uh, you know, radio traffic, things like that. Uh, and Gutierrez got poured out in court this week. Uh, a Travis County judge uh, said that he didn't ask for those records in the proper way. So it looks like he's going to appeal that. We, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, he told people on social media that he knows there are people who would like him to move on to other issues, but he's not ready to do that. And uh, honestly, I'm just um, personally not there. Uh, mentally, I'm not quite there. I've got, um, I feel like we need to, I'm going to keep fighting for some answers on Uvalde. I'm, there's no, there's no way you just need a lawsuit to get a state agency to answer honest questions in a meaningful way. And there's no way that we live in a space where a district attorney claims that she has an investigation and we may not get the answers for two to three years until she makes her final decisions. That isn't fair to these families. I'm gonna keep fighting for them in court, in the Senate. I'm gonna scream from the rafters. While he does that, Jeremy, um, you know, I think it's it's fair to ask, you know, when these documents will come out from DPS, as you've said on the show many times, the families deserve answers. It's bad enough to hear what that father was going through that we heard at the beginning of the show. That was the day after the shooting. And in a lot of ways, Jeremy, he, that father doesn't know any more now than he did then. Yeah. It, it, it's really unbelievable that, you know, nothing is different from May 24th and 25th and 26th than it is today. And the problem with today is that 
all across the state of Texas, over the next two weeks, kids are going back to school. There are, you know, fourth and fifth graders being dropped off at schools all next week and the week after that. And if every parent who's doing that isn't really thinking a little bit about it, I'd be sure shocked. You know, it's like, how do you take your kid to an elementary school right now? Uh, particularly those like kids in Uvalde, for sure. Mm-hmm. But anything in the, the universe of Uvalde, which I consider all of Texas, right? You know, it's, it's like, mm-hmm. these are our people. These are our kids. There's nothing different from those kids than the kids who are going to the elementary school down the street here. It's like, there's nothing different. They didn't do anything to get shot. Like the system happened and their kids died. And, you know, nothing has changed at all, you know, in the system. And I just, I, I sit there and I wonder, like, uh, why isn't more like noise being brought to this? You know, mm-hmm. it just feels like, you know, a lot of like, if we knew the security was different, if he knew, like, you know, you know, DPS is going to be on full force, I guess, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, what has changed? Anything. You know, ultimately. Something. The only thing really that changed, and, you know, again, hat tip to John Cornyn and the senators who are kind of working on this issue. The only thing that has changed is that if an 18-year-old like this goes to purchase that gun, they can at least check his background a little bit in his juvenile record to see if he's had any interactions with police before he gets the gun. That is the only thing that I can see that has changed. Uh, but for the kids who are like, this is a jarring thing that happened. You know, it's like my kids were of the age, uh, you know, around you know, when Sandy Hook happened, that they all had to go to school. They were I had two kids in elementary school and one in middle school. And I, I got to tell you, now in the conversations I have with them, they can express what was going on that they couldn't express back then, which is it was messed up. You know, it's like to be an elementary kid, you know, going to school and you're starting mm-hmm. to see all kinds of additional security being brought up. And nobody really wants to tell you why when you're a third grader. Oh, by the way, we're making sure you don't get killed today. Uh, but that's all processing in their heads. It's like, mm-hmm. and so, you know, my, you know, my 10 year old at the time, you know, was really affected by it, but it was like hard for her to express it. And it was hard for people to kind of, you know, talk to her about it until much later in life. And so now imagine all those kids who go to school in Uvalde. Imagine all those fourth graders, like who knew these kids, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, what, 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 what are they supposed to do? It's like, what tools have we given, not just them, but like every kid in the, you know, independent school districts in San Antonio, the North side, the South side, all, like those kids, those like fourth and fifth graders know what happened. They're going mm-hmm. to school. They know what is going on with school shootings. You know, it's like, so what have we talked to them about? How do we address this as a school, as an environment, as a community to make sure they feel like they're safe? Because I get to tell you, you know, just from my own experience after Newtown, like my yeah. kids did not feel safe going to school. And they, they were right. concerned. You know, it was a, you know, my son told me it was the first time he actually worried when he was in school about where the exit was. Uh, and they had a whole session where they talked to the kids about what happens, you know, if a shooter comes in. And it all, it was like an hour long conversation about how to lock the door essentially. And he said he was more freaked out by that, you know, ultimately in the end, really there's nothing but locking the door that is going to save our kids, you know? And he's just like, wow. It's like, again, that is the reality of what kids are going to like next week. (laughs) It's like, we're not talking about some time in the future. It's like next week, you know, millions of school children 
are going to be in classrooms looking at the door, looking at the exits. Do we have a Jack and Jill room like those kids in Uvalde? You know, it's like you start like having to process all that as a third, fourth, fifth grader. You know, wow, what a what a difficult sorry, world. Sorry situation. And uh, while mothers across Texas uh, teach their children how to hide in a corner behind a backpack from bullets, what leadership uh, in the state would like you to be aware of being very uh, scary is immigrants. So in New York and D.C., you now have migrants who cross the border in Texas who have been bused there by the Greg Abbott administration, put on those buses. And uh, you saw where uh, the mayor of New York had said that this was just cruel and inhuman. And in fact, Jeremy, maybe something exactly what Governor Abbott wants. The mayor in New York, Adams, has said he's, he wants to send people to Texas to campaign against Abbott now. Because he's been sending these migrants to New York. Uh, reporters with Reuters talked to some of those uh, migrants who were there in the Big Apple. Migrants from Central America congregated near Manhattan's main bus terminal after arriving from Texas. The state's Republican governor, Greg Abbott, on Friday said he had started to send buses carrying migrants to New York City in an effort to push responsibility for border crossers to Democratic mayors. Despite being on the road for 30-plus hours, on top of an already long journey, some told Reuters they were glad to be in New York. Colombia, Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua. We arrived today from Texas, crossing Venezuela, Colombia, Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Honduras, Guatemala, Mexico, and Texas. After three days in Texas, we were brought here. It's better in New York. There are more work opportunities. We've arrived. It's taken 31 days to get here on foot and asking for rides. I wonder if the tough-on-immigration crowd, Jeremy, is pleased that Greg Abbott is creating better employment opportunities for undocumented immigrants on the East Coast. Well, here he was. <laughs> Here's Abbott on Fox News Channel, of course, talking about using state resources for border security. We're using the National Guard to return back illegal immigrants who are trying to come across the border and the Texas Department of Public Safety is arresting illegal immigrants who do make it into the state of Texas and returning them to the border or arresting them for trespassing. So we have multiple strategies that we're using. The busing to places like New York and D.C. is just one of those strategies. Republican Congressman from South Texas, Tony Gonzalez, was on Newsmax. You get the rhythm of this, right? Fox News, then Newsmax. Uh, Gonzalez on Newsmax says it's not complicated. Those who don't qualify for asylum should be sent back to their countries of origin. And listen, Jeremy Gonzalez says there's one thing that hasn't happened in this country to facilitate that. So my constituents have said, hey, Tony, fix this. We know Biden's not going to fix this. We know the vice president is going to fix this. We want you to fix this. So I went to Guatemala last week. I spent a week in uh, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And my takeaway was this. I, I spent 20 years in the military. I've been all over the world twice over. Honduras was one of the poorest countries I've ever been to. There's a reason why those folks are leaving. But what the, the glaring uh, issue that I saw, I sat down with the president of Guatemala and I said, look, you know, what is it going to take in order for you to take back Guatemalans that enter the country illegally? These are called repatriation flights. He goes, Tony, I'll take back as many flights as you want me to. All it's going to take is this, a, a phone call from President Biden. The president has not contacted any of these governments. It's unbelievable. That's all it'd take for this to end. Now, didn't the Biden administration send the vice president of the United States 
down to the Northern Triangle countries to try to figure out what the push factors are from the countries and talk to their leadership there about what needs to happen. I don't know if between VP Harris's trip and whenever Gonzalez talked to these people that everything changed, that suddenly illegal immigration would all be fixed with one quick call. You know, like if you <laughs> if you have a, uh, you know, you have a plumbing problem at home, so one quick call will fix it all is what Gonzalez makes it sound like. But here's the deal. Whatever the whatever the facts are, Jeremy, you and, you and I both know this is key among the issues that Republicans want to be focused on no matter what, all the way to November, because their polling must be telling them that this is the this is the winning thing. Once again, this along with concerns about the economy and actually because the economy seems to be maybe moving in a little better direction. We saw the jobs numbers. We've seen inflation numbers kind of even out on the last reports. I wouldn't say that they're good, but things are starting to shift. The price of gas is starting to come down. It's not like people are happy about those things, but it's harder to sustain anger about the economy when the numbers start going in the right direction. So, hey, we've got to go back to the one that works in Texas and other places, but especially here. And that is immigration, baby. Yeah, and 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 you got to hand it to Greg Abbott. He has been, you know, you know, following the message constantly. Like I, I was kind of joking that, like, you know, if he doesn't use the word border in Biden's problem, if he doesn't use that phrase once a day, uh, Dave Carney, his you know, senior advisor, sends an electrical shock to him to make you know sure he remembers to say it somewhere, particularly <laughs> on Fox News. Please, you know, it's like yeah. so you can see like, but th their their message dedication is like. Every week he's on TV somewhere talking about this mm -hmm. issue. Every oh, yeah. day it seems like he's on TV somewhere talking about this issue. So as I, you know, like you said, the polling is clear. This is an important issue for a large portion of the electorate, uh, particularly with Republican voters. And you know, certainly until you get to Labor Day, you just got to pound that if you want to make sure your voters are excited for your candidacy going into the home stretch. Yeah. And uh, unlike other issues, whether, you know, because this is dynamic, unlike abortion, unlike gun violence, unlike the economy, which I mentioned on immigration for the people who care so much about it. And this is the fascinating thing in the polling uh, and not just, uh, you know, public and private polling that I've seen, but also in election results over the last 15, 20 years in Texas on immigration. It doesn't matter what's going on with immigration patterns. It doesn't matter what the specific numbers are at the time. The intensity among those voters stays the same, right? They're so fired up about this no matter what. And so to your point, if you can fire up those people about this thing, that almost always pays dividends. Now, what, what, so, wait, well, one, one, mm -hmm. one little note on that. It's like even when I was traveling to some of those places in the Texas panhandle, it's like some of those areas, their population have been declining, but it's been mm -hmm. able to level off simply because of immigration to those areas. If you go to places like Dumas, Texas, they're actually like picked up in population lately because of immigration. You know, you know, so it, it's an odd thing. But yet people in those areas are still complaining about the border in the immigration problem. And so you see this weird dichotomy of like, even though immigration is kind of maybe saving some of those communities up there, of there course. are a lot of people who still have a lot of problems with immigration coming across the border. You're right. We can't we can't uh, fill all these jobs here. Can we get all these people out of here, please? Um, <laughs> so so here's something that I think a lot of Republicans uh, maybe thought twice about weighing in on this week. And the, the prime example is Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Um, after President, and you know, we don't get into national politics too much here, but of course this all impacts Texas. We all, we're all, but we haven't seceded just yet, Jeremy. So this, 
it all, it, everything runs together. Um, you saw the big news early in the week. President Trump's Mar-a-Lago Club was raided by the FBI. Many, many interesting things about this. And, of course, you can read all the national coverage in the Houston Chronicle and elsewhere. Uh, number one, it was Trump himself who confirmed it. Right, This wasn't leaked out by someone else. He just put out a statement. Hey, they're raiding my house. And he said, um, they even got into my safe. So you knew it was serious. Um, the rush by some folks to defend Trump was fascinating. Here's a woman who went straight to Mar-a-Lago to stand right across the way there, across the water, Jeremy. She's wearing a giant foam. And I want to treat this with the seriousness it deserves. She's wearing a giant foam MAGA hat. And she's telling... Why are you laughing? Because What's funny giant about foam that? MAGA hat is always going to get my attention. <laughs> is giant foam MAGA hat redundant? I should just say MAGA hat. She's wearing this giant foam MAGA hat. And... Um, <laughs> And uh, and she tells uh, an interviewer that it's all this is all wrong, that it's all politically motivated. The FBI is being weaponized. Democrats are weaponizing the FBI and it has to stop. The FBI is not here to weaponize against another president. It never has happened before. Um, they should go after things that are clearly a violation, meaning the Hunter laptop, which they don't even have to investigate because the laptop is right there. All the evidence is there. Hillary, all of that is not investigated. President Trump is investigated because they're scared that he's running and he will win again. Hillary is not investigated and uh, Hunter has not been investigated. And you don't even really have to investigate Hunter because, as she said, the laptop is, quote, right there. On Fox News Channel, Steve Bannon, longtime ally of President Trump who advised him and, uh, you know, worked on his campaign, worked in the White House and all that and departed at some point. Um, Bannon said that Republicans have got to take power and then exact retribution on Democrats and on law enforcement. This is about the administrative state. This is about an undemocratic apparatus, bigger than the bureaucracy. This is the administrative state, and they want to run things their own way, and they want to pick and choose who actually runs and who actually wins. This is why it's incumbent upon, look, we have two-thirds of the nations in back of us, Hispanics, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, it's now time to take control of the House of Representatives with an overwhelming victory and then act like we mean right. that Jim Jordans and people have to step up, and Kevin McCarthy have to step up and say, we're going to have yep. full investigations, we're going to choke them down in corporation. Listen, we I got are, it, Steve. this is a non-democratic. Okay, go ahead. Well, they had to shuffle Steve Bannon off the stage there because they had to move some other to some other breaking news on Fox News Channel. I want to focus in on the last thing that he said there just for a second, Jeremy. Did you hear him say that what they need to do to the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, which would be federal cops, what he said they need to do is choke them down in appropriations. Let me translate that for you if you don't speak Washington. That means that they need to defund the police, right? They yeah. need to defund the cops. So so many different directions you could go with uh, on this. But it's very interesting that you had people jump out and say, well, you know, this is the politicization. I can never say that word. This is the politicizing of the FBI and the cops and uh, and our law enforcement agencies. This is not what should happen in America. This is like it. This is what it's like to live in a banana republic. Amaya, you have covered uh, corruption in banana republics, right? Does it seem on par with what goes on in Ecuador? Oh, boy. Oh boy. No, not really. Oh right. It doesn't. <laughs> not it doesn't. All. What's the name of your podcast, though? It's called Crooked Power. 
Yeah, check that out if you want to know what really goes on in banana republics in 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 these in these kind of countries. Jeremy, all of that aside for just a second, some of the Republicans who are running out there to badmouth the FBI are folks who voted, you know, to confirm the FBI director. And I'm going to also throw in that the FBI director is a Republican who was appointed by President Trump. Yeah, yeah. A little quick, brief history. You know, go back in the old days of 2017. Uh, remember, you know, you know, Director Ray was the guy who was appointed to replace Comey. Remember, it's like Trump pushed Comey out to make sure Ray was the guy. So this is his guy, and the you know the U.S. Senate really liked this guy. He passed 92 to five. Every single Republican you know that was in the chamber voted for the guy. Uh, that includes John Cornyn and you know Ted Cruz. You know, you know uh, confirmed. You know, Ray as the guy. So this is a Republican appointed by Trump who is kind of leading this. Right. And to me, what's really you know worth watching, uh, if you're really kind of paying attention to this, look at all the mm-hmm. other Republicans who aren't saying much. You know, it's like look right. at the ones who know a lot mm-hmm. about foreign policy, who are kind of quiet on this issue, who aren't talking nearly as much. If you look at the roster of anybody who's on the House Foreign Affairs Committee or House Foreign or in the, on the Senate Foreign Relations, you'll notice a little bit different approach to this than you will with some of the louder critics right now who are saying, "Oh, this is a witch hunt," and blah blah blah. It's like, well, in this case. Some folks are kind of hold, reserving, making sure that the president didn't have some sort of, you know, important nuclear code information somehow right. in mm-hmm. his safe somewhere. They're like once I know that, then I will t- start talking. <laughs> but you don't want right. to be sitting there defending the former president of the United States if he had like some sort of like documentation from North Korea that is going to be really right. super sensitive, you know, to the. Well, to there the were. World. Um... There were some things in the, and I'm not an attorney. I don't play one here on the podcast or anywhere else. But there were some things in the original filing that we saw from the Department of Justice that indicate that you know what's there that they were what they were looking for had to do with national security and uh, you know and had to do with potentially uh, nuclear weapons information, which would be and we don't know what's going to happen. In fact, as you know, it could be as soon as today or tomorrow over the weekend that we see more information out of the actual warrant. If it's released, there's been a back and forth with DOJ and Trump's lawyers about that. So I don't want to get too far ahead of it. Jeremy, as you know, I like for this show to have a real shelf life. This analysis is too good for it not to be listenable on Monday or Tuesday. So so, so stay tuned for that. Watch Quorum Report. Watch HoustonChronicle.com for those uh, updates. But you're right. A lot of these people jumping straight out there like Governor Abbott on the day of was saying, this seems Nixonian. There were other Republicans who were saying similar things, but I did think that it was telling, and it goes to your point, that Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who has been Trump's man in Texas, and I know he'll get some, uh, I'll get some debate from Sid Miller's campaign about that. Miller, our agriculture commissioner, Sid, Sid Miller's uh, folks like to say that he is, Dan, is uh, Trump's man in Texas. How many times do we have to hear the stories about the two of those guys, Patrick and Miller, in the limo with Trump anytime Trump would come visit Texas? How many times has Dan Patrick bragged in a speech that he can call Trump anytime on his cell phone? Says it all the time. Patrick, it took him two days for some reason to say anything about this. I found that fascinating. I thought he would be right out of the gate with some of the same stuff about how the FBI has been politicized and all that. Uh, Patrick was parroting national commentators. He said, quote, and this was just a tweet from his official Twitter account. I guess it's his it's his Dan Patrick account. 
it's not the office of the lieutenant governor account. Just to make that clear. I don't I don't need to do a correction later. Um, Dan Patrick tweeted, quote, if Democrats will weaponize DOJ, FBI, IRS against a former president, they will think of they will think nothing of weaponizing them against the American people. That means you. And I saw a bunch of other folks on the right say that similar stuff. This idea that if they could do it to the former president, they could do it to you. Then I saw Michael Keaton, of all people, who was the best Batman, by the way. Do you agree with that, Jeremy? Michael Keaton was the best Batman? Uh, I, I think so. I, I have to kind of make my whole list and kind of go over it once or twice. But yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I'll give Keaton the nod, I think, on, on first glance. Maya, do you have a thought on the best Batman? You don't. You need to watch those movies. All right. You do your homework. And we'll, we'll come back to you on that. I, I could almost argue Adam West because such a classic thing that I grew up with. We all grew up with. But, it, you know, I watched that uh, that Batman show back in the day when I was a kid. And I wouldn't have known that that's supposed to, it's supposed to be funny. Right. Little kids took it. <laughs> little kids took the spoof seriously. But it was Michael Keaton, of all people, who said uh, he, he's also on Twitter is tweeting this stuff out. And he said, well, all these people are saying that if they could do it to the former president, then they could do it to you. He said, well, precise, that's precisely the point, is that nobody's above the law. If you stole nuclear secrets, which is what may have happened here, or whatever these documents are that are uh, documents that belong to the United States, right? They belong to the U.S., right? They don't belong to any one person. Then they might execute a warrant on your house. Um, you had Cruz saying what he was saying. You had Cornyn saying what he was saying. You have Patrick taking a long time to join them, Jeremy. And I don't know if his campaign did a poll about this. It takes roughly 12 hours, something like that, to do anything that could even be considered close to a quality poll. If you're trying to just, you know, poll maybe like one question, you know, make phone calls all over Texas to just ask a question like, how important is it to you that Lieutenant Governor Patrick has a close relationship with Donald Trump? They might just be asking a question like that. But to me, there has to be some reason, and it goes to your point about certain people being careful about what they're saying on this. Um, I think that if you rush out with a statement, everyone can then use it against you. If you're just sort of quiet and you watch it play out and see what happens here, Jeremy, the only person who would notice your silence would be Trump, or at least the primary person who would notice it would be Trump. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, put all this stuff together that we've been talking about, like between, you know, this FBI director is a Republican, he was appointed by Trump, uh, you know, you know, the FBI and the whole defund the police, you know, concept is probably uncomfortable for a lot of other Republicans. And so you see a lot to measure in this. This is not an easy one. It's like for those folks who are trying to get in good with the Trump crowd, it's like the last thing you want to do is sign on to wanting to defund the FBI, uh, you know, and, and, you know, go against a Republican that was appointed by Trump. You know, I don't, I, I'm interested to see how this plays out. There's going to be a lot of material here. Um, and, you know, it's, it's strange because it's coming off of a week where like, you know, I heard people saying, well, Biden was having such a good week, uh, mm -hmm. you know, otherwise, you know, it's like all these bills are getting signed in law, including the burn pit legislation we just talked about last week on last week's show uh, that got signed into law, which is a major deal for, mm -hmm. you know, 40, 50,000, you know, Texas, you know, veterans who have been suffering these health conditions now that now may be able to get, 
you know, coverage and protected. Uh, but so there's a lot going on that's like, you know, very much, you know, going in Biden's way. And and lo and behold, you know, Trump always comes up and takes all the attention away. Right. You know, not probably yes. what Trump wanted well, to do, but he is the top of the news right now. And right. so the burn pit legislation gets thrown into the back, you know, of the news cycle. But, you know, that you know really was a big deal, I thought, for a lot of people, you know, in Texas. Yeah, and I do think that the adults within the Republican Party that you're uh, referring to who are kind of holding back and they're waiting to see how this plays out, I think one of the things that they probably realize, and this will be up for debate and some people will agree and some won't, and that's fine. You can tweet at me or send me an email. I always love the feedback. Um, It seems to me that Trump and Trumpism and Republicans who embrace Trump, that they do better electorally when the issue is not Trump. They do better when the issues are uh, jobs for people in the Midwest, bringing back you know the manufacturing from overseas, uh, building the big beautiful wall, and getting Mexico to pay for it, all of that sort of stuff. That was the way he won in sixteen. As you move toward twenty twenty, it seemed like for and and this was even more pronounced maybe uh, in twenty eighteen when it was the midterm for Trump. When the issue is Trump, Republicans do terribly. When it's him personally, they do badly, right? When it's about him and his legal problems and his ego and the idea that he can't let it go that he lost in 2020, people don't like that. If the issue is the economy, if the issue is the border, if the issue is uh, a whole host of other things that Republicans can make hay out of, that's one scenario. If it's all about Trump, I think that puts... um, you know, and you can add this to uh, the abortion issue, you can add it to the gun issue. But if the issue is Trump for Republicans, and he once again is sort of weighing around their neck like he was in 2018, that will stem, you, you may still see sort of a red wave, but it may be stemmed a bit if it's about him. Yeah, that's a great point. Because like, who wants, it's one thing to be, you know, defending like the, the border wall and, you know, whatever other Trump ideas they were, but it's a totally different thing when you're defending him in the legal process of him being, you know, fighting federal judges who are approving, you know, search warrants of his house. You know, all of a sudden, if you start defending that, you know, you're not too far from being the my pillow guy and Rudy Giuliani. Like which Republican is raising their hand going, yeah, I want to be the next up to join Rudy Giuliani at the Four Seasons Gardening Center in Philadelphia (laughs) to defend the president. You went right there. You know, over anything. So you can see I consider them the the, the measured Republicans of the in Texas. You know, it's like watch, you know, here's the watch, you know, Michael McCall's, you know, the congressman from Austin. Watch his feed. He's the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee. You know, when he starts telling you the FBI went too far in trying to re, you know, you know, regain classified documents dealing with foreign affairs. When he mm-hmm. says he, they've gone too far, I'm listening. When Dan Crenshaw says, you know, if he has, uh, you know, you know, uh, 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 classified information in the safe, so be it. When he says that. I'll listen. <laughs> you know, it's right. like there's a guy who kind of pays attention to that kind of stuff. I haven't heard either one of those guys weigh in too much on the specific search. They're, you know, mm-hmm. complaining about the IRS agents being hired and things like that, but they're not necessarily yeah. turning their fire on the FBI over classified documents. That is when, you know, I'd say, watch those guys. Those guys are going to really kind of show us how serious this is. You know, <clears throat> when they start talking, then they're in the clear. If they just kind of remain cool until they kind of know all the details. That tells you something entirely different. 
Yeah, there, there are sort of those uh, folks who are in between. I mentioned Patrick's statement. It pivots real quickly from FBI to IRS to other things, right? It, yeah. It's it's not just he's trying to. I wouldn't say I don't know if he's trying to muddy the water, but he wants to. It wants he wants it to be about more than just uh, Trump being raided. Uh, you know, for these uh, documents uh, earlier in the week. And Senator Cruz mentioned the same thing about the IRS. You know, Cruz and other Republicans upset about the big spending bill that they're calling the Inflation Reduction Act, which I'm not really sure will do that. That's a, you know, that's a quite a label to put on a bill, Jeremy, at a time like this. But if, if you're saying that, hey, we just passed this big thing that's going to reduce inflation, it better do that, right? We'll, we'll see, or, or, or even if it doesn't do it, it better happen so that so that people think that you have racked up that kind of a win here. But anyway, Cruz was talking about the idea that this will add to the price at the pump, that the gas will be more expensive. And the gas being more expensive is not the worst part. This bill will hammer manufacturing. It will kill manufacturing jobs in this country. It will hammer small businesses. This bill will drive up gas prices. It, it has billions in new taxes on U.S. oil and gas production. We introduced amendments trying to take those new taxes out. So all the Democrats say they're worried and want to low ga lower gas prices. They all just voted to raise gas taxes and to raise your price at the pump. This bill creates 87,000 new IRS agents. It doubles the size of the IRS. Those IRS agents are designed to come after you. They're not designed to come after the billionaires and the big corporations. They're designed to come after small businesses and, and working families across this country. The Democrats are making the IRS bigger than the Pentagon, plus the Department of State, plus the FBI, plus the Border Patrol combined. The IRS is going to be bigger. Now, there has never been... Um a penalty or a downside to attacking the Internal Revenue Service. It's probably the most unpopular government agency there could that there could possibly be. No one likes dealing with that. Um, people like getting their refund check. Um, but Democrats are saying that the uh, targeted audits from the IRS would be increasing for people who are making over 400000 a year. It's not exactly middle-income folks uh, is who they say that this is going to affect. Um, but look, in a time of economic uncertainty, I'll put it that way, I don't think that the average voter wants to hear that the government's going to be trying to crack down on you know, getting more money out of people, Jeremy. It's a little harder case for Democrats to make on that. But of course, it is one of those things that Republicans want to play to. Let me um, let me bring up one other thing here because I, I got a bunch of questions about this this week. And I wonder, I answered the question so much, I'd like you to answer it. Do you think it matters that Governor Abbott and Beto O'Rourke will only debate once on a Friday night in September? Your thoughts. Uh, I think it's it, like McLaughlin. It's like McLaughlin group now. Like yeah, Jeremy I, Wallace. Yeah, what you do go. you think? <laughs> uh, I, I think it. I, I think it's good that Abbott has agreed to at least one uh, debate. It was a time where it sounded like he wasn't going to do any. You know, it's like he was just on a TV station. I was watching up in Lubbock uh, where they asked him if there would be any debates and he had no answer. <laughs> he just totally skipped it and <laughs> talked about, about something that. else. <laughs> he did, you know, and his campaign right. had been saying that they didn't see a need for a debate unless the race got close. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, all right. you know, all the signs were set to not have a debate. And so I think any debate is good uh, in theory. Mm -hmm. Um but, you know, again, I, I, don't, I don't know how much they ultimately changed, you know, a right. race 
I've never been a big thinking that thinker that you know all these independent voters are hanging on any debate. I don't care what time of day it is; they're not all hanging on you know the debate you know to make their decision of right. whether or not they're going to vote for Abbott or or Beto. Right. You know, the people are always looking for the unicorn of the undecided voter. And I, the, the way I would frame it is they're trying to find voters who don't know anything. Yeah. The, the undecided vote, if you're not decided in this environment, it means you don't know anything and you haven't paid any attention. I can tell you that I'm probably not upsetting a lot of people who listen to this show because they do know. Whichever side they're on, they know what's going on. Right. So, so, so you have candidates trying to figure out if they can persuade people who don't know anything. Those people are not going to be in front of their TV watching, and no offense to our friends at Nextstar, they're not going to be watching TV Friday night, a Nextstar station, for these two guys to mix it up. Now, I was thinking about the history of this. I had uh, tweeted out earlier in the week that this was just like Rick Perry back in 2006. He, at that time, had three opponents, one of them, a well-known comedian, Kinky Friedman, right? The other two were Carol Keaton Rylander Strayhorn. That is her entire name at that point. Um, Kinky Friedman always joked that her name was uh, Carol Keaton Rylander Strayhorn Cougar Mellencamp. <laughs> um, and Chris Bell, who was the uh, uh, Democrat. And in that race, and what happened was, uh, I think it was, a, uh, I'll double check this part. I think it was WFAA in Dallas-Fort Worth. They held the debate. It was a Friday night, and Dave Carney, who, uh, like Abbott, also worked worked for Rick Perry uh, as consultant, Carney insisted that they would not have a studio audience because he wanted Kinky Friedman to put his you know laugh lines out there and get no response. So he just took the oxygen out of the room, which was smart. It was, it was a good move. Um, Perry won that three-way or four-way race. He won that race with 39%. And then I remember after that, Democrats called him governor 39% for the next four years. Um, and I was trying to remember if it had happened before that. And I was reminded that back in 19, what was it, 1988, that governor, excuse me, 1998, excuse me, Governor Bush against Gary Morrow. It was the same thing. That Bush's campaign insisted on a Friday night only, and the, of course this is during high school football. It's it's on stations that aren't maybe the biggest stations in the whole state. It's on a Friday night. It's when football is happening. It I, I can't tell you that these things matter at all for my entire career, Jeremy. I can't imagine that any of these ever mattered, even once when 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 uh, when Abbott debated Wendy Davis. Does anybody remember anything from that? When Abbott debated Lupe Valdez, does anybody remember anything from that? Does anybody remember anything from the debates I mentioned before? And at the time, back in uh, in '98, when it was Morrow and uh, and and Bush, the Democrats said it's 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 Bush trying to engineer this debate that nobody's going to watch. And you know what? Uh, what did uh, what did Bush beat Morrow by? Like thirty four points. Yeah, it was pretty. pretty <laughs> so, so so now you ha yeah, it was it was it was brutal. The uh, I, I I read a really fun story and. Uh, the Washington Post from that year. Uh, they were covering, you know, and, and the headline could be the same. Democrat faces huge uphill battle in beating Republican governor in Texas. So now you have, so now you have Beto saying what? He wants three 
additional town halls. Of course, that's not going to happen. Abbott's campaign says this is the only debate that they're going to do. I think, you know, for journalists and for some of the political junkies, and those would be the people who listen to the show. Uh, listen, we're on your side. We would like to see more. We'd like to kick the tires on these guys, you know, hear them really uh, mix it up, talk about different issues, but it's just not pivotal. And at, at one point, Jeremy, I think you're right. It, the Abbott's campaign sort of acted like they wouldn't do this at all. And I had thought, and my publisher, Harvey Kronberg at quorumreport.com, he had written a version of this saying that, you know, when when uh, Beto confronted Abbott in Uvalde, Harvey thought that might be the only time those guys come face to face for the entire campaign. But we're now going to see, apparently, these guys throw down. Well, it's interesting. Going back to your list, it's like, you know, remember the uh, the big, you know, impactful debate between Ann Richards and you know, Clayton Williams back in the 90s? No, nobody remembers right. that. You know, they actually debated. <laughs> but, like, right. you know, I can tell you, I don't have a single recollection of that. I have to go back and look at those, you know, old tapes to even see what happened. You know, everybody remembers mm. everything else in that, in that campaign season, but not that. Right. right. You know, uh, yeah. but, you know, what's interesting to me about this, like, what an interesting problem for both the O'Rourke and the Abbott campaigns. If there's one thing we learned out of 2018 was that Beto O'Rourke was not great at debating. You know, he is great right. at having a town hall meeting, getting energy out of things. But, you know, remember that first debate up against Ted Cruz, he was just flat looking for his lines. You know, he mm -hmm. didn't come off well. And But in Abbott's Wasn't case, great. he is no Ted Cruz, right? You know, in Abbott's <laughs> case, you know, we got a guy who has not been in a debate against any political candidate, you know, probably his entire career. It's like, I'm kind of trying right. to think back, when would he have had really, you know, a major close debate? You know, it's like, you know, whether Never. it was, you know, debating Lupe Valdez, would that have changed anything? I don't know. It's like, no. you know, yep. but, but it, it, to me, he's not seasoned going against, you know, a, a, a significant Democratic candidate. He hasn't been in primary debates. You know, he hasn't had any of that Nothing. to kind of go through. So in both right. cases, we're talking about a, you know, an Abbott and an Beto, somebody who might be having an Achilles heel with debating. So it probably mm -hmm. behooves both of them to just do it on a quiet Friday night <laughs> in September and not a couple of days before the election. That's the one thing I do remember about the Clayton Williams and Richards debate. It was like in November. It was like literally days mm -hmm. before people were going right. to the polls. And so you just kind of had a little bit more of a chance of a gaffe really kind of having an impact. Uh, this right. time, if anybody has a gap, you know, gaff in September, we're going to mm -hmm. long forget about it, you know, you know, by the end of, you know, the election cycle. So often these things are just about people trying to give their little, you know, two minute response to everything. And it's kind of they're, they're just trying to not mess up. And in the kind of and you know what I mean, in the kind of environment we're in. And I think about this when it comes to broadcasting, to to doing this show, to all of the coverage that we put out, uh, to what the politicians are doing and everything else. No one remembers that you didn't mess up. What they remember is when you have the big viral moments, right? And the potential for that to happen in a controlled environment, like a debate like that on the next star stations on a Friday night during high school football, probably not going to happen. Also, I'm going to get one other uh, uh, piece of incoming from people about this. People are going to say, wait a minute, didn't Governor Perry skip debates with his Democratic opponent? That was in 2010. That he did not debate Bill White, the former mayor of Houston. Uh, and at the time, the ruse was, and this was Dave Carney as well, as consultant to Perry. Um, Perry would not debate White. And the reason that Perry stated was that White would not release his tax returns, which had, I don't know what that had to do with debating the guy. <laughs> 
but it seemed to work as a ruse at the time. And I was reminded by someone who worked on White's campaign this week that uh, White actually did release 10 years worth of tax returns. And at that point, Perry said, well, we, want, we want to see the ones from 15 years ago. And at that point, you say, OK, well, they really just didn't want to debate. All right. Uh, I'm done. I think this has been, you know, one of the more outstanding shows, Jeremy. This could be evergreen all the way through next week when we talk to people again. There you go. The I, tank. They're just going to have to live with this. This is this is what's going to get people through until you know. Real, uh, to me, next week is when the campaign season gets fully into it. I know it's supposed to be mm-hmm. Labor Day, but it just feels yep. like this is when, like, okay, all bets are off. Everybody's much more serious, and mm-hmm. we're it's game time. Yes, and we we will be ready for it. Uh, if you enjoy the show, you know you do. You should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, however you listen to your favorite podcast. Give us the best rating that you can on whichever platform you use. We appreciate it. Subscribe at quorumreport.com and houstonchronicle.com, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.